This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our good friends at Musicbed, licensing relevant music. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. We are here with you on July 8th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll talk about how Brexit could devastate the movies, the Academy's diversity invitations, new drone laws, a goodbye to Abbas Khorastami and the digital Bolex, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. here in downtown Brooklyn, New York at the home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. We're coming at you on Friday this week because of the July 4th holiday, and we will return to our regularly scheduled Thursday morning programming next week. In the meantime, um, a lot's gone on since we talked to you last. We have some great news from among our ranks here at No Film School. As you all know, we uh, pride ourselves in being both filmmakers and film reporters. So one of our longtime writers, Micah Van Hove, uh, is out shooting his micro-budget feature, Shadow of a Gun, which we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, thanks to those of you who supported his Kickstarter campaign. And another one of our favorite writers, Oakley Anderson Moore, she's out doing a tug tour with her feature documentary, Brave New Wild. I think it's coming to Brooklyn soon, so we'll keep you updated on the screening. In the meantime, she prepared a really detailed post about uh, her experience working with Tug, which is a direct-to-consumer distribution platform, which means that you don't have to go through a distributor in order to book theatrical space. You can you can book theaters uh, directly with the Tug interface. And she has some really, really great detailed advice, including very specific line budgets about wh- how much money she earned and how much you can expect to spend. So thanks for that, Oakley, and good luck. Um, being summer, movie news is a little slow, but meanwhile, it seems like the international news is just going bananas. So some of these big stories actually uh, affect our industry in, in, in significant ways. Yes. Yeah, so obviously the most tectonic plate shifting piece of news from the past two weeks was the UK referendum to exit the EU, which people are calling Brexit. And it was interesting because it made me think about this film that Ken Loach brought to Cannes this year. It was called I, Daniel Blake, about a disabled working class man struggling to procure social services. If you're putting any stock into worldwide economic predictions, that film actually turned out to be an augury of Britain's future uh, with the UK's secession. Something this wide reaching has implications on all sectors of the economy, including the film industry. And so when the news broke, I started thinking about potential ways in which the referendum outcome could affect the film industry, specifically the UK film industry. But I also get into the American film industry, and you can read the article to learn more about that. Of course, let me preface this by saying that obviously this is all prognostication, even though it's based on heavy research and supporting theories from economists and film industry experts, the EU, and extensive studies done by organizations like BFI, Film LA, and Creative Europe, it's still you know, it's guesswork. So this is not this is not fact until it proves to be fact. So to understand the first political implication, we kind of have to go back in time to 1994 when a little treaty was ratified and European co-productions were born. 
Now, for all of you Americans out there, co-productions essentially enable multiple production companies from different EU countries to work together on a movie. And this is how most indie films in, in Europe get made. Exactly. And of course, co-productions have cultural value. They're a portal to creative synergy within the different cultures in the EU. But they also more importantly, for many, many reasons, they created a framework for film financing across international borders. So if multiple production companies and investors can work together to assume risk on a single film, that greatly increases the chances of that film getting made. Because many films just simply wouldn't get made if their financing was contingent upon just one production company assuming all of the risk. Now, another benefit of co-productions is that they also provide access to various countries' tax incentives, which can vary wild, wildly country to country. And co-productions that are funded by more than one EU member state can receive up to 60% aid in production budget. That is no small beans. Yeah, wow. <laughs> no, all of this is important because UK films are, generally speaking, not big budget ventures. According to BFI, just 7% of UK films made from 2003 to 2010 actually saw returns for investors, which means that only 7% of films were profitable. And with less public money from the EU, without the ability to engage in co-productions, the British film industry could start prioritizing box office yield over creative risk-taking. I was just wondering if this Brexit means that for sure... British films can't engage in co-productions or or that's part of the guesswork, that it seems like that might be an outcome? Well, co-productions are stipulated by EU-based treaties. So there's this one company called Creative Europe Media, and they, they help draft all of the treaties between countries. So now that the EU is a lone wolf, it's going to have to in individually negotiate with different countries ah. for co-productions. But this just in, actually, a piece of good news from the UK is that it's already sort of started to do that. South Africa and Britain have inked a co-production deal for specifically for television productions. And this new agreement builds upon an existing treaty, but it is a step forward towards those individual negotiations. I get into much more detail about this and highlight several other possibilities um, in my article, which you can find in the post associated with this podcast. Thanks, Emily. It just goes to show again and again that what's happening in the world is reflected, you know, by filmmakers and, and sort of matters to us. We definitely don't live in a bubble. Absolutely. It does not happen in a vacuum. We have some uplifting news on the Hollywood So White front. Uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, or as we all call it, the Academy, which, if you don't know, is the organization behind the Oscars, uh, announced plans to double the number of female and minority members by 2020. So just this year, they invited 683 new members to join. As a point of reference, last year, they only invited about 300 members. Um, and this year, among that large group, according to the Associated Press, the invitees are 46% female and 41% minority and represent 59 countries. And this is a big deal because those are the people that vote on the Academy Award winners and therefore are you know, one of the most influential bodies in modern film. The list of new invitees includes several indie filmmakers like Six Years director Hannah Fidel and Anna Lily Amirpour, who directed A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which, you know, it's not surprising since the indie world has generally been more friendly to diverse directors than Hollywood has. And it's cool that Hollywood is kind of bringing them into the fold uh, 
in this way. Meanwhile, there has been kind of mixed reactions in the film community about uh, this move and the motives behind it. I'm curious what, what your thoughts are. Well, I don't necessarily care about the motivations behind the move as long as the process itself is fair, which it was, and the outcome is favorable to women and minorities. And by virtue of being favorable to women and minorities, it's also favorable to indie film at large, like you were saying before. So to me, this is unequivocally progress. It's just it's not it's not the Academy trying to pander to what, you know, audiences want. It's just them listening to public opinion. I don't know the inner workings of the Academy and how uh, really those votes are counted, um, if everything is equal or not within those votes. Uh, do you do you guys know about that at all? So I guess it's great uh, as long as we see some actual results from it. So as long as those people that are elected actually end up having a voice in the conversation, then I think, you know, it could be a great thing. But if it's just like the Academy doing it um, for publicity while they maintain sort of the status quo of, I guess, the election or voting process, then there's not really that much change that's been made at all. So I guess we'll see next year with the uh, nominations. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. And that's a really good point. Like, I think the fact that we three who are film industry professionals don't actually know how this all works just shows like why part of why things need to sort of be a little bit more open and diverse and, you know, have more voices in the mix. So we actually have a post on the site that goes into the history of this decision beyond just the recent headlines uh, about the lack of diversity in Hollywood. So I encourage you to check it out and learn more. Meanwhile, unfortunately, the news is not as positive for women in the commercial directing world. Uh, Mashable just did a great piece on this issue after Ad Age's most recent compilation of A-list production companies for commercials was released. And it turns out on that list, only 9.7% of the rostered directors were women. That means that the directors represented by these production companies that are considered the top in the biz are by and large not women. Um, And the thing about this list is it's the guide that everyone in the industry goes to when hiring ad production companies, so it actually has like a real influence. One of the very few women hired to direct a major campaign is one of my favorite indie filmmakers, Alma Harrell, who I interviewed at Tribeca this past year. She is the first woman to direct an ad for the delicious Belgian beer Stella Artois, In this Mashable post, she was quoted. She said that she doesn't always identify herself first by her gender, but she started to notice that she was almost always the only woman in the room in these meetings and almost always the only woman on sets. She said, after seeing sets that were 95% men, it became clear to me that there's a fight that needs to take place, that the numbers don't lie. And to our earlier point about the fact that Nothing happens in a vacuum, especially when it comes to the film industry. This actually does have huge implications for indie filmmakers specifically, because most indie directors actually can't sustain a career without intermittently doing directing commercials. So for many of us, including many people I know, commercials are our bread and butter, and it's what we do to enable us to take risks on passion projects. So if the door is closed to women in, in the commercial sector, how can we really expect women to be financially stable and have a career in indie film. Totally. And uh, I think, you know, there's always this question of, well, what can we do? What can be done? And as we've talked about on the show before, we just encourage those of you who are in position to hire crew or to work, um, you know, to work with others, which almost all of us are. I've heard this saying, it's not independent film, it's interdependent film. 
um, use your your influence and try to have your sets uh, and and the people you're showing on screen actually reflect what's happening in the real world. It's bound to benefit all of us. For the droners out there, the Federal Aviation Administration has issued a 624-page rulebook for commercial droners. So there's your summer reading if you are trying to fly a drone. The rules have to do with things like the height at which drones can fly and what times of day they can be used. And the purpose of them is to ensure that that drone pilots can safely share the skies with commercial aircrafts. And at first glance, these rules may seem kind of overly detailed and restricted, but they actually allow for many more people to use drones than before and and also serve as guidelines for how those drone users can use them more safely. The thing is that before the FAA was applying the same rules to drones as it was to commercial airplanes, which, you know, didn't really make sense, but it was the only framework that they had. So they were very, very restrictive. Like in order to fly drones commercially, someone had to be granted special permission from the FAA and have a licensed airplane pilot with them on the ground. Even with that, the permission was only granted to about 5,000 people. So now anyone over the age of 16 who passes this aeronautics test that's associated with the new regulations can fly uh, a drone. And given that an estimated 700,000 to 1 million drones were sold just during the last year holiday season alone, these laws couldn't have come soon enough. Does that mean that cold stones can start drone flying me ice cream now? (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you think, girl. We are sad to report the death of Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kuristami, who passed away on Monday at age 76. His celebrated films include Life and Nothing More, which inspired fellow auteur Jean-Luc Godard to say, films begin with D.W. Griffith and end with Abbas Kuristami. He also won the Cannes Palme d'Or for his film Taste of Cherry in 1997. He actually put Iranian cinema on the map. His films explored depth through simplicity. So he would take something small, like a relationship between two people or a person's relationship to a landscape or his hallmark, which was conversations in cars, and give it cosmic implications. He liked to blur lines between truth and fiction and person and society. But most of all, the word that comes up frequently to describe Kiristami is originality. And here people are referring to his style, which is poetic and free-spirited, of course, but also to the context in which he made his movies. Starting in the 1970s, he made controversial films despite the oppressive political environment. His first movies were actually made under the auspices of an educational center, as if he were making these movies for the children, but they were pretty radically subversive. And he inspired many other directors, Iranian directors specifically, to subvert the regime, such as Jafar Panahi. Panahi shot Taxi under the guise of a taxi cab driver, Um, so he just, you know, went around Tehran and as posing as a cab driver and was actually shooting a a narrative film. This is not a film, another one of his movies, under house arrest. And this was all while being banned from making films by the government. Later, Iranian-American filmmaker Ramin Bahrani, who was famous for his collaboration with Herzog on Plastic Bag, which is, many of you remember, the one where the plastic bag has an existential crisis, was also inspired by Kiristami. Yeah, the fact that he stayed in Iran and made his films there, even though he didn't have to, uh, you know, was definitely inspiring for many who are working in the sort of realm of political narratives. We actually did a post on the site this week for crucial cinematic lessons that you can learn from him. And we're working on a video essay about his cinematic legacy that will be up soon as well. So more unfortunate news on the gear front this week. 
the digital Bolex, which was the world's first crowdfunded cinema camera, is no more. Five years ago, the digital Bolex team launched a Kickstarter to produce this affordable cinema camera, which they said would combine legendary Bolex quality with the best in digital technology. Um, Bolex camera is an old sort of vintage film camera for any of you who don't know. They wanted to capture and preserve the image detail from that old camera with stunning accuracy that would give the footage a more organic look, sort of emulating the feel of this traditional 16mm film camera. But they also wanted to offer all of the shooting positions and mounting options and sort of, I guess, technological sort of benefits of modern professional digital cinema cameras. The Kickstarter was really successful. The company earned over $262,000 in under 36 hours, and they developed the $3,300, which is pretty affordable, D16 camera. You can uh, go to the site and read a farewell memo from creative director Al Schneider, but it's sad to see that this experiment has come to an end. Will they still be selling any of their cameras? Nope. Their online store closed last week, but they did say that for anyone with a digital Bolex camera, they will continue to provide support and sort of troubleshooting and repairs um, if the user encounters them. So they'll still be around, and I'm sure they'll try and... uh, jump back in the game somehow soon. So are these things going to go on, on eBay for like millions of dollars someday? You know, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be cheaper or if they're actually going to be more expensive. I'd say since they're not developing any sort of new additions to it, it might go out of style um, and not sort of have that lasting quality. I feel like the Bolex itself, you know, kind of... Uh, might be the camera that ends up being worth more money on uh, eBay someday, but who knows? I mean, who knows? Uh, it did provide some really great images, and people swear by it in our community. Um, a lot of people say that the price point was still too much, um, and that's one of the reasons why it never took off. Also, because it hasn't really adapted to 4K quality, it was a 2K shooting camera. Um, and they couldn't really keep up with the other uh, more successful camera companies. Well, those guys were friends of No Film School, or those guys are friends of No Film School, and they are nice people, and uh, we wish them well Yeah, the next ventures. Uh, definitely take a look at that memo that L. Schneider put out, because it really shows that they were passionate people, and uh, they made a camera that they really believed in, so sad. Atmos's HDR monitors have a new firmware update. Um, this update to the popular 4K Shogun and Ninja recorder monitors now make it possible for HDR support for log video for all current RED digital cinema cameras, along with JVC's JLog Gamma Curve. It has better HDR with the support of Dolby's perceptual quantizer software, and it's also improving the Atom HDR function with a sort of unique scene brightness range slider for the monitor where you can actually slide through the standard dynamic range or rec 709 right through the hdr there's a ton of cool features in addition to this you can read about them in the accompanying article to this podcast here's a piece of gear news that is very sort of simple and not really having to do much with technology more having to do with sort of your options as a filmmaker to compose and sort of create shots in a more natural experimental way. 
I guess I would say. Uh, the design company AreaWare has created a pocket-sized golden rectangle that can be used as a viewfinder to find the golden ratio. This golden ratio, discovered by Euclid 2,000 years ago and championed by artists like Salvador Dali, locates the proportional perfection in your surroundings. So you can literally hold up the card underneath your lens or to your eye to sort of find um, where in your shot there's perfect symmetry and then go from there. A lot of people are saying that, oh, I don't need it because my eye is so good already, which is fine. Good for you. That's awesome. Congrats. <laughs> um, but if you want to try it out, it's $10 and it seems like a pretty easy experiment to uh, uh, fool around with. I think that Wes Anderson might become a big fan of this guy. Yeah, I mean, some people argue about the legitimacy of this sort of mathematical equation. There's a whole article on Fast Company about sort of debunking the myth. But, you know, if anything, it serves for inspiration. And if it's not completely true, if the ratio doesn't actually, like, hold up, it's got to be pretty goddamn close for people like Salvador Dali and other artists and filmmakers to have used it in the past. Although if he was using it to like achieve perfect balance and you think about his paintings are like totally out of whack. So I don't know. I think it's um, more about sort of uh, like focus. So like finding the structures that have perfect symmetry. So there's like certain objects that in nature actually, you know, represent this ratio. Um, Like a a rose, for example. Yeah, like a rose, exactly. Or like like a shell. This viewfinder essentially allows you to find objects that hold that um, ratio. On the opposite end of the spectrum, something that is kind of crazy as far as technological advances go, this London-based VFX studio called The Mill unveiled a product called The Blackbird, which is a car rig built with a fully adjustable chassis, a programmable electric motor, and onboard cameras and lasers that produce 100% realistic CG renderings of virtually any car in the world. Essentially, this car rig can become whatever car you want it to be. Um, So, you know, think in the past, think in the present, or even maybe the future. In addition, it's developed a sort of application to go along with the product that allows you to see the intended vehicle in CG live on the rig in location. So you can shoot and sort of play around with whatever different cars you want to within any different shot. Really cool application of CG technology. And apparently it's something that we'll see more often now because I think we actually just released an article um, today that said there's a company that's going to be making drone technology similar to this so that drones can become any plane you want it to become. That is nuts. Yeah, a pretty cool solution to like having to go out and rent and find these cars and maybe, you know, someday it could be a valuable and sort of um, less expensive tool in the long run. But right now, it's pretty expensive. You can check out the video in the article for an example of how it works. Moving on to some grant and opportunity deadlines. Uh, for doc makers, we already announced the deadline for the Points North Fellowship, which, as a reminder, is July 14th. But the fine folks at the Camden International Film Festival have now taken their program even further in developing the Points North Institute, which they hope will be a launching pad for the next generation of nonfiction storytellers and has programming, workshops, events, all kinds of things all year long. We have an article on the site about it. Um, As part of this programming, they're offering a CMG Action Grant, which offers up to 10 grand to produce short films related to healthy oceans or renewable energy solutions. And the deadline for that is July 31st. 
Now for a contest that has an extremely low barrier to entry, TIFF, otherwise known as the Toronto International Film Festival, and Instagram have teamed up for a digital shorts competition in which you can submit a 60-second Instagram video. All you have to do is make a video that's 60 seconds and then hashtag TIFF times, which is X, Instagram, and then fill out the submission form attached to the website, which is linked to in our podcast post. Your film will be judged by Xavier Dolan and Ava DuVernay, as well as some prominent music video directors and a very famous animator and illustrator. The winning films get to be part of the TIFF Instagram Film Festival, which will happen online for about a week in later July. Yeah, and the winners also get a very valuable pass to Toronto International Film Festival, so definitely worth entering. On July 14th, there is a deadline for the World Cinema Fund production grant. This is great news for our filmmaking friends in Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean, Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Caucasus. The World Cinema Fund is out of Germany and has about 350,000 euros to support the production and distribution of feature films and feature-length docs from regions with a weak film infrastructure. The maximum award per film is 80,000 euros, so it's a pretty decent bunch of money. And on July 12th is the deadline to submit your film for the Warsaw Independent Film Festival. I'm mentioning this one specifically because part of the reason we missed the show last week is that I was in Warsaw and Krakow. I just got back. This festival is actually only a couple years old, and it's not that surprising. Although Poland has a long cinematic history, I mean, Roman Polanski's Polish, um, a more alternative culture has only just begun to emerge. Um, basically since the fall of communism in the 90s. I witnessed some of that culture, especially in Warsaw. There just seemed to be a very DIY spirit, and it would be worth applying to this festival just to kind of get yourself there and show a movie in this this environment that felt kind of, you know, boiling with new creativity. Films with non-English dialogue must be submitted with English subtitles for this fest, and it accepts basically any type of film and also ones that have been shown at other festivals. Again, the deadline's July 12th. We want to give a special thanks to Musicbed for sponsoring this week's podcast. Ever since Musicbed entered the industry, they've been changing the music licensing game for us filmmakers. There's no more sifting through endless production catalogs or settling for a song that, like, just kind of works. They've signed with more than 600 of the world's best indie artists and composers. That means incredible music for your projects with friendly staff and an easy-to-search catalog to help you find it. This catalog represents artists in so many different genres, from indie veterans like Need to Breathe, Kai Kai, Ben Rector, Parade of Lights, and my pals and one of my favorite bands, Paper Moons. It also includes classic artists like Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. So head on over to musicbed.com to explore their catalog, read up on a blog, see their latest film, or just chat with a music expert. Right now, this is the best part, they're offering 20% off a single license just for Indie Film Weekly listeners. You can get the discount by entering the promo code SCHOOLSOUT when you check out. That's S-C-H-O-O-L-S-O-U-T when you check out. There's no better time to find the perfect soundtrack for your latest project. And now we're going to answer one of your questions from the board from the past couple weeks in our Ask No Film School segment. Um, This week's question comes from Gustavo Gonzalez, who asks about the process for editing his short film. He says it's giving him paralysis. He says he has about 40 to 60 minutes worth of coverage for each scene he filmed. And since it's the first time he's editing his own narrative stuff, he edits corporate video all day. 
He's extremely paralyzed and anxious about it. He asks if we have any go-to tips that we follow when editing our own scenes. I would say, Sensei Walter Merch. Pick up in the blink of an eye, read it. Uh, online, there's a bunch of Walter Merch uh, methodology and ideology, so you can just read his essays, watch his videos, and he will get you started. Also, try working with an editor because some people do like editing their own narrative things, but I really think there's inherent value in collaborating with an editor because it's an entirely different skill set and perspective. And you may be just too close to your film. The fact that you can't whittle it down sort of indicates that you're too close to the material. You need someone to come in and slash your darlings. Yeah, I think... Killing your babies is the most important thing about editing, especially within the context of a short film. Um, and it's really hard to do. I mean, I haven't started shooting this short that I've been working on for the past, like, I don't know, year and a half writing. And if you do have like a fair amount of time to be working in prep before your short film, um, sort of, you know, sending around your script to different people, whittling it down as you go, like, my script started at 25 pages. Now it's down to 13 because I killed so many jokes that I didn't think were actually that funny. Like thing doesn't, things don't resonate with you as much after time. So if you have some sort of foresight where you're editing and you can tell that sort of some of your material is funny to you in the moment but doesn't serve the larger purpose of the story, that is definitely the stuff you should start to chew off first. Yeah, it's funny. I made notes um, to answer this question and said exactly the same thing that Emily just said. Um, and in fact, we have tons of Walter Merch stuff and other uh, editing, lots and lots of posts about editing tips and workflow on No Film School. Just a couple months ago, we, we put a post up with excerpts from a very detailed interview with Walter Merch talking about uh, you know how he approaches his work. So totally agree with what both of these guys have said, as well as... Um, I'm a doc person, so I'm not as familiar with narrative, but a lot of times in the doc world when we have so much material for edits and sort of don't know what to do with it, which, you know, I've found myself in that position many times, we sometimes start with a paper edit. So instead of even looking at the actual material or looking on the screen, it somehow helps you potentially like divorce yourself from what's there and just think sort of conceptually what might work and what what might not if you kind of like write it down or put it, you know, some people use index cards and uh, to talk about each scene or each sub part of each scene and then they remix the index cards and sort of come up with something totally different than they would have if they were distracted by what they had actually shot. I don't know if it works as well as narrative, but it might just be an exercise to try to sort of um, push yourself outside of the, the stuck space that you're in. Yeah, and I wonder if this is sort of an improvised uh, short that he's been shooting um, but I think that the more time you put into prep to avoid having 40 to 60 minutes of footage for each scene that you have the better um, just because that's a, that's a that's a ton that's mm -hmm. a ton of footage mm -hmm. um, to have to go through um, for yourself and it's no wonder that you know you feel sort of paralyzed and anxious about it and you know that's a good point too because uh, as much as it might be hard to hear advice like that um, I think the you know, one of the great things about independent filmmaking is that we learn something on every, you know, we learn something every time and the next one's always better. Yeah. And I'd say 
maybe the biggest draw um, from that sort of experience and sort of uh, what you can focus on and what everyone can focus on when making a short is just keeping the process as streamlined as possible from inception to completion. Speaking about screenwriting, we're going to get into some movie openings now. And one movie that's hitting video on demand this week that I think is a really good example of the sort of process that a writer director uh, goes through is the movie Green Room. It was directed and written by Jeremy Saulnier. Um, it's a follow up to Blue Ruin and his lesser known work, Murder Party, which I just checked out a few weeks ago, which is a really insane movie. He was actually one of the members of this panel that I went to about. Um, screenwriting horror and thriller films Um, and one thing that he said that was very interesting was that he intentionally writes his characters into corners and keeps writing them into corners as far as they can possibly go until he reaches a point where he can't really come up with an escape for them and then he just kills them Um, wow brutal talk about kill your darlings yeah exactly (laughs) that sounds like what I used to do on the sims (laughs) (laughs) Um, and green room is a really good example of that um, because you know the main characters kind of just get themselves into trickier and trickier situations until there's bloodshed so um check it out it's really i really liked it ryan and micah really didn't like it when they saw it at sundance but it's up to you sounds like summer fun yes nazis and punks and death summer fun hot hot speaking of nazis and punks and death some of Quentin Tarantino's uh, big-name films are finally on uh, Amazon now. Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. So those actually could be some summer fun on a hot day. And hitting Netflix this week are a couple of Oscar nominees and actually one award winner. The Big Short came out earlier this week, but since we didn't have a podcast last week, um, I'm going to mention it now. It won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay this year. It stars Steve Carell, Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling, and Christian Bale, uh, who gives a pretty awesome performance, and it's directed by Adam McKay, Um, and this is one of his first sort of ventures into drama. He is probably best known for his work on movies like Anchorman and uh, Step Brothers, which are two of my favorite comedies, Um, and he sort of keeps that loose, um, fast-paced style in this dramatic form. Um, The editing is... A little bit controversial, but it's definitely unique. Uh, it's really fast-paced. It's really loose. There's random inserts of Margot Robbie in a bathtub just talking about how the economy works so people will actually pay attention. She's um, my gr- dream girl, by the way. Is she? Yeah. I, I think you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I have to share her. <laughs> um, but yeah, so a good movie to check out. Mustang is another Oscar nominee that is hitting Netflix on July 12th. Um, it was nominated for the Best Foreign Picture last year out of France, directed by Denise Gamze Erguven, who I actually spoke with last year um, prior to her Oscar nomination. Uh, she told me a little bit about the process of shooting such a controversial movie in Turkey. The movie's about five orphan girls who are basically just living out their lives being, you know, fun-loving children playing with boys on a beach and their guardians are worried that that it will impact their marriage potential so their guardians basically can find them in a house and it becomes like the virgin suicide yeah i was just gonna say (laughs) but much more interesting because the girls realize their independence in the face of really true obstacles um not just internal obstacles external obstacles and 
they're basically married off one by one and some of them rebel and i would highly recommend it it's shot sort of like a documentary very flowy and ethereal and it's got a lot of substance good acting too an actual documentary about uh, a group of young girls um kind of finding empowerment is Daughters of the Forest, which um, is coming out on July 10th, my birthday, on PBS. It's uh, at 10 p.m. And it's directed and shot by my friend Samantha Grant, a really talented filmmaker out of the Bay Area. Uh, It tells the story of a small group of girls in one of the most remote forests left on Earth. And they basically attend a radical high school where they learn to protect the forest and to kind of make a better future for themselves. So it's a really unique story with a, a, you know, from an area where we generally have very little access. Where is the forest? Yeah, what forest? It's in rural Paraguay. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of theatrical releases this week, a film that's a personal favorite of mine out of Tribeca last year, not this past year, but the year before, is called Men Go to Battle. It's made by Zachary Treats and Caitlin Scheel. And I actually spoke to Zachary last year about the making of the film, and this year, Brett Jukowitz, the cinematographer. The production story is really interesting because they shot it with a very tiny, tiny, tiny budget. They knew they wanted to make a Civil War-era film, but they didn't have the resources, obviously, to stage battles. So they headed down to a Civil War reenactment site, basically forced their way in there, and wound up dressing up like Civil War reenactors and embedding themselves within the action while a big battle was being reenacted. And that's how they got most of their battle footage. And it's so cool because they didn't, Brett was saying they didn't really have the ability to plan any shots. They couldn't light anything. So it looks very ad hoc, but it's also gorgeous. The other great thing about the aesthetic of this movie is that it's not shot like a period piece. Like it doesn't have any slow pans or you know sweeping wide shots it's very intimate and they almost never cut to wide it's shot like an intimate indie feature yippee so that about wraps it up um next week we'll be coming to you at our regularly scheduled time thursday morning um as i mentioned it's my birthday this weekend um so for a present could you please rate us and subscribe um on itunes it means a lot uh, you can read about all the grants and get links to all the articles that we mentioned on the post associated with this podcast at nofilmschool.com. And you can find me on Twitter at LizFilm. You can find me at Twitter, too, at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. Jim, And I am on the Twitters as E.L. Booter. And we are on Twitter at nofilmschool. Thanks so much. See you next week. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you.